the wines and cooking were really as good as any in Europe, and the demeanour of the attendants exactly mirrored the fixed mood of the English upper class. The proprietor knew all his waiters like the fingers on his hand. There were only fifteen of them, all told. It was much easier to become a member of Parliament than to become a waiter in that hotel. Each waiter was trained in terrible silence and smoothness, as if he were a gentleman's servant, and indeed there were generally at least one waiter to every gentleman who dined. The club of the twelve true fishermen would not have consented to dine anywhere but in such a place, for it insisted on a luxurious privacy, and would have been quite upset by the mere thought that any other club was even dining in the same building. On the occasion of their annual dinner, the fishermen were in the habit of exposing all their treasures, as if they were in a private house, especially the celebrated set of fish-knives and forks, which were, as it were, the insignia of the society, each being exquisitely wrought in silver in the form of a fish, and each loaded at the hilt with one large pearl. These were always laid out for the fish-course, and the fish-course was always the most magnificent in that magnificent repast. The society had a vast number of ceremonies and observances, but it had no history and no object, that was where it was so very aristocratic. You did not have to be anything in order to be one of the twelve fishers. Unless you were already a certain sort of person, you never even heard of them. It had been in existence twelve years. Its president was Mr. Audley. Its vice-president was the Duke of Chester. If I have in any degree conveyed the atmosphere of this appalling hotel, the reader may feel a natural wonder as to how I came to know anything about it and may even speculate as to how so ordinary a person as my friend Father Brown came to find himself in that golden galley. As far as that is concerned, my story is simple, or even vulgar. There is in the world a very aged rioter and demagogue who breaks into the most refined retreats with the dreadful information that all men are brothers, and wherever this leveller went on his pale horse, it was Father Brown's trade to follow. One of the waiters, an Italian, had been struck down with a paralytic stroke that afternoon, and his Jewish employer, marvelling mildly at such superstitions, had consented to send for the nearest popish priest. With what the waiter confessed to Father Brown we are not concerned, for the excellent reason that the cleric kept it to himself, but apparently it involved him in writing out a note or statement for the conveying of some message or the writing of some wrong. Father Brown, therefore, with a meek impudence, which he would have showed equally in Buckingham Palace, asked to be provided with a room and writing materials. Mr. Lever was torn in two. He was a kind man, but he had also the bad imitation of kindness, the dislike of any difficulty or scene. At the same time, the presence of one unusual stranger in his hotel that evening was like a speck of dirt on something just cleaned. There was never any borderland or anteroom in the Vernon Hotel, no people waiting in the hall, no customers coming in on chance. There were fifteen waiters, there were twelve guests. It would be as startling to find a new guest in the hotel that night as to find a new brother taking breakfast or tea in one's own family. Moreover, the priest's appearance was second-rate and his clothes muddy. A mere glimpse of him afar off might precipitate a crisis in the club. Mr. Lever at last hit on a plan to cover, since he might not obliterate the disgrace. When you enter, as you never will, the Vernon Hotel, 
You pass down a short passage decorated with a few dingy but important pictures and come to the main vestibule and lounge which opens on your right into passages leading to the public rooms and on your left to a similar passage pointing to the kitchens and offices of the hotel. Immediately on your left hand is the corner of a glass office which abuts upon the lounge, a house within a house, so to speak, like the old hotel bar which probably once occupied its place. In this office sat the representative of the proprietor, nobody in this place ever appeared in person if he could help it, and just beyond the office, on the way to the servants' quarters, was the gentleman's cloakroom, the last boundary of the gentleman's domain. But between the office and the cloakroom was a private room, without other outlet, sometimes used by the proprietor for delicate and important matters, such as lending a duke a thousand pounds or declining to lend him sixpence. It is a mark of the magnificent tolerance of Mr.